So welcome back to the Psychopath Epidemic Podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. With me today, a guest from Birmingham, Alabama, a clinical psychologist, Alan Blotke, PhD. Birmingham, Alabama, Alan. Uh, I only know it as the birthplace of uh, one of my favorite actors, Walton Goggins. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I learned that Charles Barkley's also from there in the recent uh, right. uh, Chicago, Chicago Bulls documentary that I watched that he was in. Uh, tell me about Birmingham, Alabama. Alan, what's it like? It's a very red state. I can tell you that right now. Very red. In fact, I think, I don't know recently, but over the last four years, I think it's been the strongest Trump supporting state in the country. I was thinking about that when I was reading through some of the articles that you've published recently, and I was wondering, uh, are you are you nervous about uh, publishing the articles that you do about Trump's mental state living in a red city? I really expected some pushback, some blowback, but I've gotten maybe three, four, five, six nasty emails. And honestly, of those, probably only a couple of them were from the state. They were from all over the country. So no, I right. really haven't gotten mm. much uh, blowback. Oh, well, that's good. Hope it stays that way. Knock on wood. Before we call, get on to your uh, president's mental state, do you, want to, do you want to tell us what a clinical psychologist does? Well, I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I'm in private practice and have been in private practice for, um, ooh, how long? 36 years, believe it or not. Um, I evaluate and treat people with all kinds of mental problems, mental disorders, issues, however you want to phrase it. Um, I do a lot of different things. I do a lot of what we call forensic cases, um, where I do child custody cases. I do some criminal cases. I do personal injury cases. I really see myself as a generalist, and so I do a lot of different things. But I'm in private practice. Right. And I've so I've read a number of the articles that you've had published in places like Salon, uh, where you have referred to Donald Trump as a psychopath, the most psychiatrically disordered president in history. You've said he has malignant narcissism. I'm assuming he's not a patient of yours and you haven't had a chance to interview him when running through something like the PCLR. Yeah, I have not had a chance to interview him. And of course, that's been the pushback. Um, A lot of mental health professionals are hesitant to speak out because of that singular issue, which is how can you talk about somebody's mental condition unless you've seen them in your office? And Mm -hmm. I agree with that in concept. But in the practical world of we have a president uh, who is out of control, who, who clearly has uh, mental pathology. And let me just say this, notice this, not one mental health professional in the past four years has come out in support of this man. And has not one mental health professional has come out and said, y'all have it wrong. He's a perfectly normal, healthy person. What are y'all talking about? So, um, All of this stems back to the Goldwater Rule. The Goldwater Rule was established in 1964 by the American Psychiatric Association after many mental health professionals went after uh, Barry Goldwater when he was running for president and basically said he was a dangerous uh, person psychologically. Um, and ever since then, the, the Goldwater Rule has been in effect. A lot of psychiatrists, most psychiatrists, the vast majority of psychiatrists abide by that rule. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a clinical psychologist. We don't have the same kind of uh, restriction or rule in place. But then there's a whole subset of people who believe in what we call the duty to warn, meaning is the duty to warn does that supersede, supersede the Goldwater Rule? In other words, 
is it more important to warn the public than it is to stay quiet and abide by the Goldwater rule? And so many people like me believe that the duty to warn is more important than abiding by the Goldwater rule. Hence, I speak out. Do you, do you really think we need clinical psychologists to warn us that Trump is mentally unstable? Wasn't that uh, perfectly obvious a long time ago? Well, there's about 40% of the population that I think adamantly would deny it. I don't know. I think, I think I see my role, hopefully my role has been to educate and inform because not everybody has experience with psychological things and and i'm not i don't know what percentage of the people realize that he's mentally impaired you and i do but i don't know um if the largest swath of america understands it or not hopefully they do by now yeah my concern is that they probably do but they vote for him anyway but um let's talk about how you came to the conclusion that you're a uh, a professional uh, in the in the field. What are the what are some of the indicators that you have seen in Donald Trump that have led you to conclude that he is a psychopath? And let me just say this, and this is this kind of piggybacks on what we were just talking about. You know, back in 1964 with the Goldwater Rule, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have social media. The only the only way Americans even knew about Gary. Barry Goldwater is probably by watching the 6 p.m. NBC or ABC or CBS national news. Now we are bombarded with all kinds of audio, video, speeches, tweets, comments. So we have a pretty good sample of behavior. We see him, we hear him. um, And so, yes, a clinical interview would be the cherry uh, on the ice cream, but it's not like this is a shot in, in the dark. We see a lot of things about this. So to answer your question, um, he has a grandiose sense of self. He thinks he's smarter. He thinks he's richer. He thinks he's better looking than anybody else on the planet. He thinks that all that matters is his opinion. And even more importantly, his needs, his wants, and his desire. He's a pathological liar. 20,000 plus lies in the last four years. That comes out to an average of 15 lies a day. Think about that. 15, 15 lies each day. And they're just the ones that he's said publicly. That doesn't yeah. even include what he says off camera. To his wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, Stormy Daniels, who? Never heard of her. Uh, He's uh, got a total lack of empathy. My biggest thing about Donald Trump, to tell you the truth, is the way he has handled this pandemic. Because not only are 219,000 Americans dead, but just, just his demeanor about it, the way he talks about it, everything about it um, is a psychopath in action. It's like he doesn't even, it doesn't even register to him that 219,000 families have lost a loved one. And, and what's really irritating, beyond irritating, is that he could stop it. Most of those lives could have been prevented had he been a normal human being, a normal president. And so in many respects, and, I, and you've seen an article of mine that clearly says this, I think he has killed these Americans. I mean, not not with his hands, but by his inaction, by his callousness, by his lack of empathy, by his disinterest. Because here's what I think happened. I think when he was informed that the pandemic was about to hit, he made a very quick calculation. Hmm, I want to be reelected very soon. And if I announce this to the public, and if I jump on this like I should, the stock market's going to crash. The people are going to be upset. And my re-election chances are going to go down the toilet. And so I think he made a very quick political calculation that it was in his best interest to deny, deny, deny. And so what if we lose 200,000 people? 
And I think that's well, me, what he's continued to do for the last seven months. Well, let, let me push back on that slightly, though. My understanding of uh, the way the U.S. works is that the states had the uh, ability themselves to put into place their own lockdowns, their own restrictions, look after their own medical requirements. Uh, how much responsibility do the governors of all of the states take for the situation? All right, well, so let me push back on that. The way it was set up is that we, were, we needed to have a national strategy. A playbook was handed to Donald Trump by Barack Obama. It was laid out how to handle a pandemic, because Barack Obama had already handled some pandemic. There was an office of, I forget the exact title of it, but there was essentially a pandemic office that Donald Trump disbanded when he, when he got into office. If he had, if he had provided leadership and had, and had uh, organized and distributed this national strategy to handle this pandemic, all of the governors would not have felt like they were left out to dry. So what happened is Trump said, not my problem. You guys figure it out. The governors figure it out. And the governors then began fighting over how to get the PPE. They were all fighting with each other to try to find PPE. And so rather than having a national strategy, it, 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 that is true. It became an issue of the governors handling this. But I think if you ask all the governors, the vast majority of governors would feel like they got very little support from the federal government, i.e. Donald J. Trump. Well, no, uh, no doubt his handling of it has been particularly woeful. Um, but again, I think that uh, the responsibility, there's plenty of responsibility to go around over there for how badly it's been handled. You know, by comparison, and I know there are a lot of differences between our countries, but Australia currently total deaths from COVID is running around less than 900 deaths over the period. Now, our population is about one tenth that of the United States. So if we multiply that by 10, you know, you'd be running about, say, eight and a half, nine thousand deaths if we scale it up. Per right, million. So how did, what did y'all do to make the difference? Well, this is something that my wife, who I mentioned to you off air as an American, and I have talked about. We've done a number of podcasts about over the last six months, and we've had other some other American um, uh, guests come on and talk about it. Uh, I, look, we we took it seriously. Our prime minister is a conservative, uh, a very religious, wears his uh, religion on his sleeve, conservative. I, I don't like him uh, at all as a politician. I don't like him at all as a human being, quite frankly. I think he's appalling. But <laughs> when the virus hit Australia, he stood up with medical experts and said, first of all, he tried to dismiss it for about a week. Uh, I remember him saying, look, I'm still going to the football this weekend and uh, I'm not going to let it worry me. And then very quickly, he did a 180 and he said, okay, no, this is actually really serious. And we need to shut the country down for six months. And I think the difference, the, the, the most noticeable difference to me between Australia and the US is when he said that, everyone in Australia basically went, oh, okay, wow, that's serious, but I guess we better do that if that's what we need to do so we don't all die. Um, and the country just, it, there was, there's a sense of unity still in the country about, well, look, we're one population. We may not like you. As a politician, we may disagree with everything, but you're standing there with our chief medical officer and uh, <clears throat> you're putting together, you may be uh, a crazy religious nut, but you're, um, you're backing the science on this. Right. So we will just get on board. Everyone just got on board. The same thing as when one of his predecessors, uh, another conservative prime minister of ours, John Howard in 1996, after we had a particularly bad mass shooting in the state of Tasmania, declared that we were going to outlaw semi-automatic weapons in Australia. Right. The entire country just went, yeah, okay, good idea. Let's do that because uh, we don't want more of that. That's really bad. Mass shootings with 20-odd people dead. 
and uh, country never looked back. We just put it into place and got on with it. So we still have a sense of community, I guess, left in Australia where we can all get on board with some of these serious issues, regardless of our political or religious uh, affiliations. And I just get the sense that America has divided into tribes in a way where it's very difficult for the country to come together, even when you're facing existential crises like the pandemic? Well, I may be, I may be simplifying it too much, but I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. But I think the reason we did not have that unity is because of our presidential leadership. He did not provide it. He basically did. Um, he has made everything more tribal. He has made everything more chaotic and divided. He's undermined our experts. We don't listen to science anymore in this country because he undermines it, because he wants Trump yeah. narrative to be the rule of the day, not science. He's undermined the free press. But, but this didn't start with Trump, right? As I've been saying for four years mm -hmm. to American friends, yeah. Trump is a... Trump is a symptom of underlying systemic issues over there. He's not the cause. I mean, George W. Bush was very anti-science in a lot of his views and started this, uh, well, you know, was very dismissive of intellectualism mm -hmm. and uh, people studying the facts. This has been coming a long time. It seems to me that Trump is just the uh, latest manifestation. Yeah. Yeah. He's made it worse. I, I you know, I, I, I don't know. I, George W. I, I'll take George W. Bush back any day. Send him. That's back. what my wife says. Send him back. <laughs> Send him yeah. back. Uh, yeah. He, if, if he undermined science, there was nothing compared to this guy. I mean, he's uh, Tony Fauci is our public health expert, uh, who is wide, nas internationally known, and yeah. he has dismissed him. He won't even have him. He won't even allow him to be on uh, TV anymore. Yeah, no, no doubt he's made it worse. But as I keep saying, ten years from now, I guarantee you, people will be saying, "Remember when we tr thought Trump was the worst? Yeah. Wow, we would love to have him back." Um, because if you don't, and this is this will get us back eventually to talking about psychopaths. But if you don't fix the underlying systemic issues, I think yeah. it's just going to continue to get worse. Let me ask you another question. So um, turn your clinical psychological skills to some of your previous presidents. When I have friends of mine over there who post on Facebook saying Donald Trump is the worst president in history, I'm like, well, really? Is he, though? It depends on how you measure. Because I've, I'm an historian by uh, hobby, I guess. Uh, <laughs> LBJ, Nixon. These guys were also horrible, horrible human beings behind the camera. You read any of the major biographies, Robert Caro's biographies on LBJ, etc. You know, awful, awful human being, um, loathed by many people um, who knew him, including in LBJ's case, particularly the Kennedys. Uh, and they started wars or escalated wars that killed millions of people around the world, despite everything that Trump has done domestically, at least he hasn't got you into a new war like George W. Bush did. Again, millions dead. You have lots of presidents that have done far worse things than Trump has yet to do. I will give you the part about starting wars. You know, certainly Vietnam would fall into that category. That, that was a total disaster. Uh, but even in my mind, Trump, Trump has trumped that with his uh, 219,000 deaths and counting. He's still not doing anything differently. I agree with you. I'm, look, I'm not saying any of our prior presidents, there were a number of them that weren't great human beings. I still don't think, of course, uh, I don't think any of them uh, have attacked democracy in the same way that Donald Trump has tried to and is trying to. George W. Bush authorized torture and suspended habeas corpus. Look, you can try all you want to. You're not, 
look, I'm not, I'm not going to defend some of the isolated things that some of these other presidents have done, but I still think if you put the collection of actions and behaviors together, Trump takes the cake in, in modern history. I think the major difference, in my mind, between Trump and some of your previous presidents is uh, publicly the previous presidents put on a shiny face. They uh, wanted to present themselves as being presidential publicly. Behind the scenes, they may have been horrible. A lot of, uh, a lot of great... I remember one of my favourite stories about LBJ. It's in, I think, one of Robert Caro's books, somebody's book. It was when he uh, had a bunch of journalists out at Camp David <clears throat> at some point. And uh, they, they were in a scrum with the... Uh, press secretary, and then all of a sudden, LBJ's Jeep comes uh, <laughs> screaming along, pulls up next to where the journalists were all meeting, points at one particular journalist he uh, didn't like, and just, you know, crooks his finger at him to come in. Guy jumps in, LBJ takes off, and the journalist is trying to talk to Johnson. He doesn't uh, respond. He drives for a couple of minutes out of sight of everyone else, pulls over jumps out, drops his pants, takes a dump on the ground in front of this journalist, gets back in, drives back and, you know, shoes him out of the car. That was his uh, message to tell the journalist what he (laughs) thought of him. He'd been writing some critical Uh, articles about Johnson and Vietnam, I think. I mean, so you read stories like that, which probably didn't get out into the mainstream media, but uh, as I say, behind the scenes, terrible people. But Trump, for whatever reason, whether it's his narcissism or as uh, just the fact that he he's not really a politician, he's uh, right. got some money, probably not as nowhere near as much as he pretends he has, but he's got some money, and he knows that if he if he gets kicked out of the office, he'll just go back to playing golf and bankrupting hotel chains and stuff like that. So. He, he he doesn't really have to play the game, and so therefore he's just um, honest. And I think he also learned during his days on the apprentice shows and doing Fox and right-wing media that uh, there's a certain segment of the population that loves that kind of dog-whistle uh, politics. And I think when he's out of office, he's going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money uh, facing criminal charges. Well, I think that's the thing now. Uh, my friend Ray, who lives in Virginia, uh, and I have done a long series on the Julio-Claudian emperors, the Caesars. And, you know, obviously, uh, for people who don't know their Julius Caesar history, the reason, the main reason Julius Caesar started the Civil War in uh, 49 BCE was because he was they were trying to force him into resigning his governorship of Gaul and uh, he knew that if he went back to Rome without his army and without that protection they were going to throw the book at him for some reasons some nefarious and and some probably reasonable he had a lot of enemies back in Rome and so rather than submit himself to being exiled and having his wealth taken away from him which is probably what Cato would have done he um he decided to march in with an army and say okay this this is over. Right. Um, Trump seems to be in the same situation now. I mean, it seems quite evident that uh, once he's out of office, uh, they're going to come at him, and he is will spend the rest of his life trying to keep himself out of jail, which doesn't sound like the kind of prospect that he's willing to face. And, and of course, he tries to he tries to convince everybody that he's the victim, and everybody's out to get him. He he can't possibly see that he has gotten himself in hot water by his own actions and you know he's always the victim well that's classic psychopath behavior though isn't it alan um yeah yeah psychopaths will never take responsibility they always blame everyone else um they're always you know they're always the victim they're always sympathy yeah which is combined simultaneously with their inherent feeling of superiority and their very high appetite for right. risk because they usually believe they're better and smarter and more cunning than the people around right. them. And with good reason right. to think that because they are more cunning. They probably, if they've survived to a certain point in their life, 
they probably have gotten themselves out of a bunch of stuff in the past. And so they think, okay, well, I can talk my way out of pretty much anything. But uh, part and parcel of that is presenting themselves as the victim whenever they're being attacked or, or exposed. The interesting thing about Donald Trump that I always th- that I think about is what what if he were not a wealthy man all these years? Mm, mm. That sort of has provided a buffer for him. Mm-hmm. How would he have survived this world had he not been a rich guy? Mm. He's he is sat in an office, surrounded by family members mm. who do exactly what he says. Uh, if he had to go out and get a nine to five job like the rest of us. Uh, he would have had a much, even even a harder life. Well, maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. And that brings me to my broader point. So the book that I published earlier this year, The Psychopath Epidemic, tries to make the case that the major problem facing the world today is the prevalence of psychopaths in position of wealth and power in uh, political leadership, corporate leadership, religious leadership, military, police, education, charities, you name it. Um, Because it seems that, well, you know, according to psychiatrists who are experts in the field, Robert Hare, et cetera, um, something like one to 4% of the adult population probably rate rank highly on the psychopath scale. And so the question is, well, in the US alone, that's a few hundred thousand people. So where are they in society? And it seems to make sense that some of them uh, burn out along the way, or they don't have the IQ to get very far, or they're just at home uh, abusing their uh, wives and children and, and relatives and being a pain in the ass in the local community. Some burn out uh, for various reasons and uh, get exposed because they're not uh, clever enough or cunning enough. But a percentage of them end up in the workforce. And because of their ability to lie, cheat and steal and then feel good about it uh, and sleep well at night, whereas most of us can't do those things, at least with impunity, you know, I, I, I say that we all lie, cheat and steal at some point in our lives, but usually we feel really bad about it and we're full of anxiety that we might get caught and, you know, we beat ourselves up, we feel guilty. Uh, whereas psychopaths, when they do those things, have the best night sleep of their lives because they think of themselves as hashtag winners. And anyone, like the funny thing, I was working on this book for seven years and everyone I talked to about it, said, oh, yeah, I've worked for people like that. I've, I've, I know people like that. I go, yeah, of course you do. I've had, they, everyone says, I've had managers, I've had CEOs, I've had, uh, you know, uh, bishops, a um, friend of mine who's a priest, uh, actually pointed at Cardinal George Pell um, many years ago who he thought might have been a psychopath. So um, the, they're everywhere in society, I think, Alan, and a lot of them manage to work w- their way up the ladders of power. Yeah, they rise to the top, especially in America. Well, I do think that the American form of capitalism has made it easier right. for psychopaths. Right. Um, right. Because literally, you can right. just jump on a Greyhound bus, uh, go to anywhere in the country. If you grow up in a small town, go to anywhere in the country, get a job and work your way up. Lie, cheat, and steal your way to the top. Right. So, Here's my question to you as somebody who's worked as a clinical psychologist for decades. uh, How often do you come across people that you think are exhibiting forms of psychopathy? Um, You know, I see a fair amount of it. Uh, Again, if you think of it as a continuum or a scale, I would say for the most part, I see folks that would be in the mid range. Um, I haven't seen a really bad psychopath in, in a quite a while, I would say. But um, I think it depends on the setting in which you work as a clinical psychologist. If, if I worked in the hospital, I might see more of them. As, as, an, out, in a, in, as in an outpatient office, you know, think about it. 
psychopaths don't usually knock on your door. <laughs> They're not looking for The therapy. only reason they come to see you, yeah. the only reason they come see you is either their wife has threatened to leave them yeah. or they're in legal trouble mm -hmm. or something of the kind. There has to be an external stressor that will get them to your office. Yeah. They don't just wake up one morning and go, you know, I think I'll go talk to a clinical psychologist because I'm beginning to feel a little bit of remorse. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. No. No. So there has to be an external reason for me to see somebody. Yeah. So when you are um, reading the news, one of the, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book is, you know, I started off trying to answer the question, why do I continually see in the news people in positions of wealth and power who should know better doing completely stupid, egregious things that hurt thousands and thousands or hundreds of thousands or sometimes millions of people and they don't seem to have any remorse about it and i you know i i tried to figure out what the answer to that question is they're doing things that i can't see myself or my friends doing if we had wealth and power all of a sudden i don't think you go from being a decent person to a uh, you know a horrible person and that led me to studying uh psychopathy and then i started to realize that when i see psychopathy talked about in the media it's usually we're talking about serial killers uh quite often it's fictional serial killers even that mostly talked about or maybe hitler or stalin or pol pot or somebody like that we don't i don't see a lot of media coverage talking about ceos politicians cardinals police chiefs generals as psychopath and yet there must be plenty of them out there so i think generally in society people don't understand psychopathy very well the general public associates it with serial killers and not ceos enough and in order for us to do something about this because again i think this is the big biggest problem we're all facing uh, we need to have a better general understanding of what a psychopath looks like. Because again, when I say to people, you know, here are the symptoms of <laughs> psychopathy. Uh, here's what they look like. Here's their behavioral uh, tendencies. Everyone goes, oh yeah, I've worked for people like that. And all of a sudden they understand, well, that guy's not just uh, an asshole. He's actually probably a psychopath that boss that I have or used to have. And don't you think the, that the more we educate people and inform people, perhaps there'll be a decreasing of the complicity that often goes along with some of these people. I hope so. You know, I've always said to my friend, Donald Trump, I don't think Donald Trump would have had nearly as much impact in our lives had he not had there not been so many complicit people around him. Yeah. You know, our attorney general is the biggest enabler you've ever met in your entire life. Whatever Donald Trump wants, he does. Yeah. If, if we didn't have an attorney general like that, and if we didn't, if he wasn't in a cocoon of complicity, um, his impact, I think, would have been far less. But he's a master at finding people who are as corrupt as he is and weaving them into his web of existence. And again, that's what successful psychopaths tend to do. They're, right. they're very charming. I remember <clears throat> reading in, during the election in 2016, reading a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but some articles of people who weren't, publicly weren't fans of Trump, but then met him behind the scenes, donors and uh, business leaders right. and people like that, who would say, you know what, off camera, he's a completely different guy. He's very nice. He's very charming. Um, it's all just a front, what he puts on in the camera. It's a show. It's theater. Yeah. Behind the scenes, he's actually very nice and very charming. And I kept screaming, yes, that's what psychopaths do. They can right. They, Look at that disconnect. Yeah, they. What a disconnect. <laughs> they are masters. Right? The ones that succeed at any to any level in life are masters at faking charm and give, showing people what they think they need to see in order for the psychopath to get what they want. 
Well, you can probably answer this better than I do because you are a historian and I'm not. But ultimately, I've always maintained about Trump, and I think it's true of other psychopaths in history, is how ultimately self-destructive they are when push comes to shove. Because it seems like every move Trump makes is the wrong move. Hmm. I mean, he's essentially self-destructing, in my opinion. Well, I, you know, I don't necessarily think that's necessarily a psychopathic uh, trait. I mean, they do have typically very high appetites for risk because they think they'll be able to, they'll win. And I think if they do get cornered, they will burn the house down rather than give up power, typically speaking. But at the end of the day, I think they, they want the continuation of their own wealth and power. So they're not, Oh, absolutely. So they're not necessarily self-destructive. They're not deliberately trying to make bad decisions. So I think there's something else going no, on with I would, Trump. I would maintain that Trump unconsciously makes bad decisions because down, if, you, if you strip away his, his narcissistic false self, which you would find is a guy who really thinks he's inadequate and weak and a failure, not as smart as, not as, smart as other people. And I think there's something about him where he really does self-destruct because every single, clearly he's not a politician, but even that aside, he just makes, he just says and does things that are doomed to failure. Yeah. Although he did win the presidency of the United States. So you got to give him that. Yeah. Um, it's also, uh, th yeah. there's elements of the Dunning-Kruger effect with him too, right? He, he, he thinks, right, right, he thinks right. he's way smarter. You know, on some right. of my history podcasts, we've had a gag. And a lot of his supporters are that way too. Yeah. We've had a gag for the last couple of years where I'll, you know, I'll say that I, my co-host, uh, no one knows more about the subject of uh, rocket science than he does, which is one of Trump's favorite things. No one knows more about this than me. Um, right, 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 right. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the Adderall if we can, uh, Alan, I'm sure you've heard this rumor. I think it came out yeah. not long after he was elected. Uh, one of the, I think one of the, the line producers on the apprentice show yeah. said that Trump started snorting Adderall fairly early right. on, partly to lose weight for the camera, but also partly because he struggles to read and the Adderall right. gave him the ability to focus in short bursts to read a teleprompter. And um, obviously, right. long-term addiction to Adderall can have a lot of negative uh, effects on somebody's mental state. What are, what are your thoughts on the Adderall? Does, it, does, does that seem to match his behavioral uh, problems? Yeah, it would not surprise me. I think that's probably true. I think he probably, uh, uh, his attention span is so short that I think he's, uh, he tries to use that to um, help his attention span. I don't think it's very successful. Uh, is he probably hooked on it? Probably so. And that's not surprising because, you know, uh, alcohol and drug abuse would not be surprising to me. There have been other rumors about that. Um, there's also been a lot of discussion in the United States about whether or not he's got dementia, whether he has the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease. And um, I don't put a lot of stock into that. He may have a little bit of something going on there, but I think mostly what we're seeing is the psychopathy of him. So if you take a psychopath with narcissism and you throw Adderall into the mix uh, and then make him well, it just jazzes him up. <laughs> yeah and then you throw in a little treatment for COVID and uh, he's uh, he can be I think he's been a little bit like hypomanic uh, in the last couple of weeks because of the, the cocktail of drugs that he was given the other night he announced to the crowd that he was feeling so powerful and so well he was going to come out into the crowd and kiss guys and beautiful women. Yeah, I heard that. Um, I did a I did an interview last week with a guy who's a life sciences venture capitalist and who some of the companies in his portfolios make the same sort of uh, antibody drugs that 
Trump got from Renegon. And uh, he, the guy I was interviewing said he estimates conservatively that the dose of antibodies Trump got at Walter Reed was worth about $8 million. Wow. I bet, I bet that made him feel uh, wealthy. <laughs> well, I don't think he paid for it. I think uh, the American taxpayers paid for it, but still. Uh, we've paid for everything. We pay for his golf outings. We pay for everything that he does. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, what we do about psychopaths like this. Um, it seems pretty important to stop psychopaths in the future uh, becoming president of the United States. Any ideas on how we might go about that, Alan? Well, I think there are a number of different points. One point would be, I don't think our media did a very good job of vetting him leading up to 2016. I think he was kind of a novelty. I think he was a celebrity. I think everybody kind of was bowled over by him and didn't do a very good job. I don't remember people speaking out very much back then. I'm sure there were some, but not enough. Like you said, I think he was a, I think he's a symptom of systemic problems in this country. So I think by addressing those better, you help prevent the attraction to somebody that's a psychopath. I think that the, the people who have it in this country are so different and distinct from the people who don't have it in this country. And it's true, our middle class has shrunk. And I think it's that the, it, it's, it's, it's the lower economic strata that was attracted to Trump, largely, because they, they saw him as the vehicle by which he could blow up the political system, because the political system hasn't been meeting their needs. They've been left behind. And it's true. They have been left behind. And I think it's that systemic um, problem that needs to be addressed better by Joe Biden and the people who come after him, or else uh, we're still going to be ripe for a Donald Trump type con man to come in and, and sell his goods. Yeah. And I, I think the problem that you have when it, when you look at something like the media is you got to ask the question, well, how much of the media is run by psychopaths? Um, yeah. Rupert Murdoch, uh, Roger Ailes, who's now deceased, but right. certainly going by all the stories right. that have come out about him, psychopath. Um, you've got right. Jeff Bezos, now one of your major media owners, whose uh, track record of looking after his own people at Amazon is uh, obviously appalling. Right. Again, so if you if you have the media that's run by psychopaths, what kind of a job are they going to do to protect? the nation from somebody like Trump. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Then you had uh, Bill Clinton, who uh, yeah. was getting uh, sexual favors from an intern in the, in the Oval Office and lied about it or, you know, uh, whatever he did to get out of the, well, it's not my definition of sex. Uh, it's just a blowjob. Whatever. <laughs> he, yeah. he lied. I mean, you know, he just and then and Hillary Clinton supporting him through that and demeaning the women that were accusing her husband of having molested them. You, you've got psychopaths. See, that's the thing about psychopaths. Yeah. I keep explaining to people they're not just on the right; they're on the left as well. They're, no, that's true. They're, Absolutely, they're everywhere. They will they will climb any ladder that they think will get them the wealth and power and uh, and uh, you know public acknowledgement that they crave so i look i think education and information is the only way to deal with it the public has to be informed they have to be educated which that brings us full circle because one of my frustrations has been i have not been able to speak out as much as i want to yeah the media won't allow us that's right and that's I mean, one of the reasons why I was uh, attracted to your article in the first place is you were the first uh, American public health a mental health professional that publicly called Trump a psychopath that I had 
And I, and I couldn't believe they printed it. I could not believe they printed that. Yeah. When he wrote me back and said, we're going to do it, I thought, holy cow, the New York Daily Times is going to print it. I could not believe that. Yeah. Because nobody else it. And so do you think, I mean, I'm, why? Why do you think the media is not uh, accepting articles like this more? Is it the Goldwater rule? It doesn't really apply to the media, though, right? Yeah, I think it's the Goldwater rule. I think um, I think people probably are. Look, I think a lot of people see mental health professionals, and I think the idea of a mental health professional speaking publicly about somebody does not set well with most people, because they wouldn't want their mental health professional to come out and speak about them. And I understand that. I understand that. But I think there's that kind of feeling. I do think they're scared off by the Goldwater rule. I think the American Psychiatric Association has put pressure on the mainstream media to not voice the opinions of mental health professionals. So I think it's kind of a multi-layer problem, uh, but it has definitely been here. I mean, I, I just had something published in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald. I saw that. Um, so I think other countries are more prone to print it than our country. It's one of the few newspapers in this country not owned by Rupert Murdoch. Now, Salon is a website. They print a lot of stuff. They haven't printed everything I've written, but they've printed a lot. So there are a few that will go that will do it. Yeah. But uh, there are few and far between. They really are. Trump is uh, famously very litigious as well, so they might be worried about slander or libel lawsuits. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. What kind of feedback have you had from other psychologists and psychiatrists? Has anyone contacted you and saying, "Hey, you shouldn't do that"? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't gotten one of those. Well, I've seen a couple of things on Twitter. Mm. But I would say the vast majority has been supportive. Mm, that's interesting. Mm. And um, what's your uh, professional opinion on the mental state of Joe Biden? Uh, he's getting older. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I've been watching him more carefully lately, and I really do think he's. Um, I think his stuttering continues to be something, I think when his speech gets garbled, it's his stuttering. Uh, I think he probably has a couple of senior moments here and there, but I'm not, he's such a breath of fresh air to me that, that uh, I'm not too concerned about him. Now, four years hence, who knows, right? Yeah. Well, look, I, um, I don't have much time for Joe Biden as a politician at all. I mean, again, as the historian part of me is very familiar with his role in shepherding through the 1984 yes. crime bill under Reagan, then the 94 crime bill right. and the amount of damage that that's done, particularly to minority communities. Uh, I'm too familiar yes. with the level of corruption in his state, Delaware, uh, his involvement with uh, the mob and the Teamsters back in the early 70s to get him elected in the first place. Uh, right. His whole story that he didn't know that Hunter Biden was uh, doing dodgy deals with Burisma, etc., uh, I just find to be laughable. Um, I think that's uh, just straight out has to either a lie, or the fact that he didn't come out when he heard when he knew about it and tell Hunter to cut it out and get off the board of Burisma, particularly when Joe right. was the Veep, who was the point man, Obama's point man in Ukraine. Um, pushing in the new right. U.S. hand-picked government in Ukraine for his son to be milking it using his father's name. He should have just publicly come out and denounced his son and said, listen, that's not right. acceptable. We don't tolerate that kind of nepotism. But he didn't. Uh, I think these are all indications that he's, uh, you know, he's dirty. He's not. Uh, but like these politicians of yore that I mentioned, LBJ Nixon, publicly, he knows how okay. to play right. the game and put on a shiny face. Do I think he's as dangerous as Trump? No, but uh, I also think he's uh, not at all as clean as uh, he tries to pretend. Look, I agree with you, but it's a binary choice. It's one or the other. And to me, um, 
he's not as dangerous as Trump. I just had a look at Howie Hawkins' uh, policies this morning, the Green Party over there. They've got a good, good, a good platform. But not going to win. No, they're not going to win, no. As Donald Trump would say, I like winners. Ah, right. Well, there's a... I don't like people who get captured. I don't like uh, prisoners of war. Yeah. I like, like winners. I don't like people who invade... Uh struggling third world countries to try and uh, restore French uh, colonialism. Uh, but uh, that's a whole other story. Yeah. All right, Alan. Well, yeah. uh, thanks very much for coming on and chatting. And as I said, I am impressed to see somebody with a clinical background uh, publicly stating what a lot of people I think have assumed, but there's just not enough talk about it. I, my encouragement to you is to now turn that lens on a lot of other people in American public life, positions of power. Yeah, um, I will. I'm actually in the early stages of pre-production of a TV show that I'm calling The Psychopath Hunters, where I partner up with psychologists and psychiatrists and we go out and we interview people in positions of huh. wealth and power, get them to sit the PCLR and just do interviews with them and see how they fare and then talk about what does that mean if they... they well, stay in touch with me. I'm interested in that. That's interesting. That'd be great. I'd love to come and do something in uh, Alabama. We could go and you and I could go around and come on. interview some of the leaders. Come on, I'll keep you out of I'll keep you out of jail. <laughs> Assuming we're ever allowed to travel to the United States again, our our government has put a ban on travel outside of the country, but uh, particularly now, travel minister came to the U.S. Well, our travel minister came out a week or so ago and said Australians shouldn't expect to travel to the U.S. or Europe for at least another year. Um, yeah. So who knows when we'll be able to get back over there? But well, as soon as that's lifted, come on. I'd love to do that, Alan. We can uh, go out and um, go out and do some do some investigative uh, interviews in uh, the Alabama community. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Stay in touch, man. All right, Alan. Thanks for your time. Have a have a great night. Thank you. You too. All right. Well, that's the show. Thank you.